Well, folks, uh, blessed to be here this morning. I actually just returned from overseas a few days ago, and, uh, and before long, we'll be heading back out over again. Uh, I know that it's probably been at least five or six years since we've been here, uh, and some of you are really not familiar with what we do, but we've been involved in the longest-running civil war in Africa, the war in southern Sudan. In the last 60 years of the nation, we've had 36 years of declared war, but in truth, folks, we've been fighting for almost the entire 60 years, and we're fighting on multiple fronts right now. Almost 20 years ago, we became the official training arm for the Southern Sudanese Army of training all pastors and chaplains for their military. We have a very intense Bible school. We get our guys up at 5 o'clock in the morning and we run them 9 miles. We take them straight up a mountain and straight down a mountain and then we have 8 hours of class time and 2 and a half hours of study time daily. We only feed our guys 2 basic meals a day and the reason we do that folks isn't because we can't afford to feed them better but if we don't train them hard, they will not be able to survive. So we we have to train these guys extremely hard. Now, in sharing with you this morning, I'm going to kind of take you on a journey. And as we take, begin to go on this journey, it's going to look a little bit like I'm jumping around, but I'll try to bring it all back together at the end so you understand what we're talking about. The title of our message today is what King David said, which is, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Folks, uh, one of the things that we need to understand is there's a great misconception within the body of Christ. Most believers truly do understand that salvation is a free gift of God. Most of us really understand that. But what most Christians do not understand is that the rewards of heaven are earned. And if we never do anything for Christ in this life, why do we expect great treasure on the other side of eternity? The Bible says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But it doesn't say they're all mansions, it just says there's many mansions. I've often wondered how many one-bedroom flats or two-bedroom condos there are there. And we need to understand that there has to be a point in our life that our service to the Lord actually cost us something. Has there ever been a time that you've served where it was inconvenient for you to serve? Have you ever gone out and shared your faith when you felt that there was some part, even any type of danger or the fact of an insult that might come back at you? Has there ever been a time that you have given what it actually cost you and made you uncomfortable in your own personal life? And this is what King David talks about. He says, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. You know, I want to share with you guys that in December, December of 2013, we had a coup within the nation of southern Sudan. The former vice president of the country tried to take over the country. He was not successful, but more than 100,000 people lost their lives in that attempted coup. And the, and the casualty rate continues to climb every single day. I was in Russia at the time, and I'll explain that a little bit later. When I got a call from my wife, Vicky, it was about midnight. And she called me and she said, honey, they have surrounded the national headquarters. They've been locked in a three and a half hour gun battle. They're trying to kill the general. The general she was talking about was the minister of national security. Uh, he's one of my closest and dearest brothers in Christ. I led him to the Lord almost 20 years ago. He's the greatest general in all of the southern Sudan. And because of this, they knew for their coup to be uh, successful, but to be able to take over the country, they would have to execute him. So that's exactly what they were trying to do. When Vicky said this to me, I said, Vicky, I've got to get off the phone. I've got to deal with this situation immediately. And I called two of my senior your chaplains in the capital of Juba. And I said, listen, guys, they are trying to kill the general. If we lose the general, we are going to lose the nation. I said, you get every man you can, and you get down there, and you counterattack. Do not worry about your lives. Do not worry whether you survive or not. If we lose him, we will lose the nation. And our guys mounted up, and they headed down there, and they said, it was about midnight, and they said they literally drove into a hell of gunfire. As they were coming down the road, tracer rounds were coming down the road at them all the way. For those of you who are not familiar 
familiar with military terms, a tracer round is a bullet that has a red or orange glow. It follows it at night. It helps you to direct your fire. When we pulled up to the national headquarters, uh, they were dead bodies on the ground. The guys dismounted and went in. There were two positions of fire the enemy was firing from. We set up mortars. We sent two mortars into one and one into the other, and we silenced the enemy. When I called the general at 4 o'clock in the morning, I said, General, how are you doing? He goes, I'm here with the men that you sent my brother. But then he said to me, he goes, Wes, I need you to immediately deploy 20 chaplains to the front lines. He goes, this was a sneak attack in our capital. Many of my men have been massacred. Many of their family members have been killed. My men want revenge. He said, fighting and killing is a part of warfare, but murder, rape, pillaging, and plundering is not. And if you do not get your chaplains to the front lines, he goes, I do not know what my men might do. So I immediately deployed 20 of our chaplains to the front lines. Now, guys, the enemy army came down, and they attacked a city called Boar. When they went into Boar, they came in with 25,000 rebel soldiers. They killed every man, woman, and child in that city. They went in the hospitals. They shot people in their beds. They took the pastors and the priests. They pulled their collars back, and they cut their throats. They took every young girl from the age of 9 years old to 90 years of age, and they raped them, and then they killed them. And that was what it was like in the city of Boar. Now, my guys went up with about 400 soldiers, and in a place called Sudan Safari, they ran into a major enemy ambush. And guys, when they were going up there, they said they were attacked between some were between 1,500 and 1,700 enemy combatants. Now, Sudan Safari sounds like maybe some romantic place in the world, but truly it's just a place in the middle of nowhere. And they said the enemy came at them. They were able to fight them off, but they said for only a moment, and then they came back with a vengeance. And what would ensue after that was about a four-hour gun battle. What was unique about it, it was completely out in the open. There was no cover anywhere. The only way you could find cover is if you went far enough to get away over a little hill or a little berm of some type there. We had our chaplaincy vehicle parked out there with a Christian flag flying above it. Next to it was a military vehicle. The military vehicle was hit by an RPG. It blew up and killed everyone inside of it. But in four hours of fighting with 1,700 men shooting at us, not one bullet or piece of shrapnel hit our vehicle. And I don't even know how that's humanly possible outside of the hand of God. But because of it, it became a great witness to the people there. And many soldiers came to Christ through that. They said there's real power with these chaplains. How is it possible that this vehicle did not get hit? I was in Russia. I had to get out of Russia and get on the ground in Sudan. I hit the ground. I picked up about 13 more of my men, and we headed up to the front. It's an extremely ominous feeling as you're going up there because every single village is either destroyed or vacated. You will not find a single human soul left there. About 90 kilometers outside of Bor, we started to run into the dead bodies. We came across four destroyed T-72 tanks. There were bodies on top of them, bodies in them, bodies all around them. And there were bodies all the way up to the time that we hit Bor. When we hit Bor uh, that day, and this is several weeks after the main event went down, my chaplains had buried over 700 people in that one day alone, and that tells you the level of killing that was going on in Bor. And that was the beginning of my year. About that time, the Holy Spirit began to speak to my heart about going into the ISIS territories. And guys, one of the things that I tell people in America is that I'm just not a person that's really given to leisure. Out of the 52 weekends of the year, I normally work 50 or 51 of them. 
Uh, normally, the only weekend I take off every year is the weekend before Christmas. Other than that, I work pretty much all year long. Uh, between Out of the 365 days of the year, I probably only take off about eight or nine days a year. The rest of them, I am overseas or I'm on the road somewhere traveling and speaking. But it is the way that God has geared me. He's geared me towards labor. I'm not geared towards leisure. God has just not made me that way. My days run 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. And I remember that I was meeting with my doctor recently, and he said to me, he goes, you know, Wes, he goes, what do you do for leisure? I said, evangelism. And he's a Christian man. He goes, no, I mean, what do you do to relax? I said, I do evangelism. And he laughed about it, but it was true. I was telling him, this is what I do with my life and my spare time. I'm just not a person that's given to leisure. So when the Holy Spirit spoke to me about going into the ISIS territories, it wasn't that I did not care, folks. But one of the things that I realized is how would I find any more time to do this? I was really troubled by the fact that we were called in this major civil war, and I did not know how we would find any extra time to do it. But one of the things that I teach my guys in Africa is when you know what the right thing to do, do it immediately. Because if you do not, you will compromise in your relationship with the Lord. One of the things that we need to understand is so often God wants to work within the church. He has a great vision or a great plan for them to do it. But we look at it in of our own strength, and we say it's not possible, and we don't attempt it. We're never supposed to look at it in and of our own strength. See, the great works of God are not done by human man. They're done by the empowering and the direction and the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. As God leads you and guides you, he will strengthen you. He will strengthen your frame. He will prepare you for the battles that are ahead of you. And so I began to investigate what was going on with ISIS in the Middle East. In America, we edit our news. In Africa, they do not edit their news. When we talk about cutting someone's head off, you will not see it on national TV in America. I have witnessed it on national TV in Africa. And folks, it is truly one of the most horrible things that you will ever see in your life. The people are terrified about what they're getting ready to go through. Their lungs are heaving with air. And even after they cut the head off, it seems like the lungs breathe for a moment just because of the terror of what the people are going through. So God began to get a hold of my attention. But what really struck me is I came across a photo of a little girl. She was probably about two and a half, three years of age. She's wearing a little blue and white dress. Her father was holding her in his arms. And Isis had cut her head off because she belonged to a Christian family. At that point, we realized we had to get in the battle. We had to engage the enemy. We had to protect those that did not have the ability to protect themselves. One of the problems that we are living in today is we're living in a generation where we are raising a generation of effeminate men in America. We're not raising men to be the way that God created them to be. As men, we were made for battle. We were made to get in the thick of it. We were made to be protectors of women and children. One of the things that we've lost is our God-given right as men. We were to be the spiritual leaders of the family. We were to be the providers. We were to be a wall between the world and our families. And men have forgotten what they were created for. We're living in a generation where men are into fashion and the foolish things of this life. They do not understand whatsoever what they were created for. As God called us into this, we opened up a new division of our ministry. We call it ghost operations. It's the invisible hand in the closed world of radical Islam. We're now operating in seven of the the 10 most dangerous Islamic nations in the world today. We're in the area of Taliban, of Afghanistan and Pakistan. We're in the area of ISIS, Hamas, 
Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Islamic Jihad, Islamic Brotherhood, and many of the radical Islamic organizations. Last year, we would send over a half a million dollars into the Middle East just to rescue believers and also to be able to support pastors and works over there. We sent $200,000 alone to the Syrian church to help feed the Syrian church so that God might be able to take care of our brothers and sisters over there. And God's called us into a very radical part of the world. But as I was going over there, folks, there were several haunting things. I traveled to the Middle East, and it was very precarious as you go in there because most of the places as we would begin to go in, they would pull us out and say, we will not allow you to go into this area. ISIS is an area. They want to abduct Americans. They want to execute you on TV, so they would turn us back. But there was a very haunting interview with a young little girl. She was probably somewhere around about the age of 9 or 10 years of age. And this little young girl had had her entire family killed by ISIS, her mother, her father, her brothers or sisters, her aunts and uncles. She was the only child to survive. And this little girl starts to say in almost a hushed voice, a very quiet voice, uh, almost a very timid voice, I want my mom. I want my mom. I want my mom. And then the temple voice begins to rise higher and higher and higher till it goes to a shrill, and then she is screaming at the top of her lungs, I want my mom, I want my mom, I want my mom. She knows that she will never ever see her mother again, but she's a child, and she's not equipped to handle that. And as men, we were meant to protect those that could not protect themselves. You know, guys, when God first called me to Africa, I'm ordained as a Calvary Chapel pastor. I've been ordained more than 20 years. And like most people who go to the mission field, I went there to be a pastor, a Bible teacher, an evangelist. My wife was going to work with the women and children. This is the reason I went to Africa. I never dreamed I'd actually have to physically get involved in the longest-running civil war in Africa. But the rebels began to come down and attack the villages around us. One village that was around us, they attacked it, and they took 58 newborn babies, and they crushed their heads against trees. At that point, we realized we had to be protect, begin protecting the women and children, so we began to build sanctuaries for the women and children to come in at night. We took in and we fenced in large areas of land, and we put up guard towers and ran razor wire all the way around it. And as the sun would begin to set, at first you would see a trickle of women and children coming in. But by the time the sun went down, people were coming in by the thousands. They estimated 44,000 women and children a night were coming in looking for sanctuary against the rebels. Among the South Sudanese army, they're great warriors. They're extremely tenacious in battle. And often they would fight extremely hard until they realized they could not win a battle. And then they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. One of the villages that they pulled out of, the enemy army came in and they built these huge bonfires. And they picked up the babies and the toddlers and they threw them in and they burned them alive. When we came into the village, you could see the little cranials, the little spinal cords running throughout the ash of the fire. And the Lord told me, you've got to do something about this. So I set the men down one day and I said, guys, I want you to understand something here. I go, it is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We are men, they are women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. We are called to protect those that cannot protect themselves. We are called to care for those that cannot care for themselves. And we have a role in this life as men. We are called to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. We're living in a generation, folks, where the scripture is greatly misquoted. When Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, 
It means to take an offense if someone gives it to you. It does not mean to let them rape your wife and kill your children. That's not what the scripture ever meant by that. Do you ever see King David letting people come in Jerusalem and just wiping out the people, calling it turning the other cheek? See, we have a role as men, and part of that role is we are to behave like men. See, we live in a generation where we are raising a generation of childish men. Paul the Apostle said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. See, one of the things that's missing within our body, folks, when Christ came into my life, it revolutioned everything about my life. It changed my politics. It changed the movies I would go to. It changed the books the way that I read them and perceived them. It changed everything about the music that I would listen to because Christ truly took over in my heart. He became the Lord of my life. Many people give their lives to Christ, but he has not become the Lord of your life. You have not surrendered. You have not come to that place which you have said, Lord, I am yours, and wherever you will send me, I will go. Whatever you ask of me, I will do. And that's what being a true believer is all about. The Bible says he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And as believers, we are to be lost in Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I'm going to take a turn again. And please understand, I'll try to bring this together. I go to Russia every year, guys. And uh, I've been a missionary in Sudan for 21 years now. But previous to that, I spent five years in the former Soviet Union. And I traveled all across Russia going from prison to prison preaching the gospel. And truthfully, guys, it's one of the great privileges of my life. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. I was on my way down to Mexico to speak at Juan Domingo's church. Juan Domingo is an incredible man of God. He was actually born John Lilly, an American citizen. He gave up his American citizenship and took on Mexican citizenship. He gave up his American name and took on a Hispanic name. He has planted four Calvary chapels in Mexico out of that, 90 churches have been planted there. And I was supposed to go down and speak at his church, guys, but something would change it. And I remember that when I went down there, I had to tell Juan that I could only speak at the Sunday services. I was supposed to be there for the Sunday services and then teach a week at his Bible school. But I go to Russia every year. And again, I'm going to bring this together for you. And guys, if there's anything that is a vacation for me, it's going back to Russia. I've always been a cold weather person. You know, I've never been a person who really likes hot weather. And one of the hard parts about being in Sudan is it gets so hot there. I was over there just recently. It was about 118 degrees, you know. Very hard to difficult in minute to do ministry in that type of weather there. So when I go to Russia every year, I always go with the Christmas season. I love the winter weather over there. And uh, I loved, I, when I land on that airplane in Moscow, and I get off the airplane and I get outside and I take that first breath of cold Russian air, I just feel like all the stress melts out of my body. Whatever stress I've been through, it just seems like it just melts away. And just those two or three weeks in Russia will get me through another year of war in the Sudan. And there's, Russia was truly my first love in missions. It's always been my first love. But I remember that years ago I was going to Russia and I felt like the Holy Spirit laid it upon my heart to bring a woman's watch. I didn't know why. The biggest holiday in Russia every year is not Christmas, it's New Year's. They celebrate New Year's much greater than Christmas. And they don't celebrate Christmas on December 25th. It's Eastern Orthodox Christmas, which is January 7th. And so it's very different than ours. And uh, I'd gone to Russia, and I was actually Christmas Day, and I was looking out. Was, I'm in the church, and I'm teaching, and I'm looking out the window. Very picturesque snowflakes the size of quarters are coming down 
when all of a sudden I spot about a 74-year-old Russian woman. The first thing that I noticed about her, she had like a large mole that almost covered half of her face. It was brown, it was purple, it had blue, pink, red, different colors in it. And as soon as I saw her, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, that's the woman you're to give the watch to. Well, after the service, I went up and introduced myself and she told me her name was Lydia. I learned a lot about Lydia because of the birthmark that Lydia had had. She had never been married in life. She had never had a boyfriend. She had never gone on a date. She had never had a man tell her that she loved her. She had never had a man tell her that she was beautiful. She had never experienced truly much of any kindness whatsoever in her life. She really struggled. She always had the worst jobs in Russian society. She told me the first time she ate chocolate in her life, she was 50 years of age and a child gave her a piece of her chocolate, but she had never ever had chocolate before. And when I gave Lydia the watch, she started to cry and she said, my watch has not worked for more than two years but I was too poor to buy another one. She lived off a diet of fried potatoes and borscht, which is kind of a cabbage and a beet soup. That's all she could afford. She said she could only afford to drink milk twice a year. She would walk into stores and look at raviolis and shake her head and walk out because she just could not afford them. That's how poor this woman. Her winter jacket she was wearing was from 1960s, which I don't know how she kept it together all those years, but that was the poverty that she lived in. And God really put it on her heart to take care of Lydia, so I went and I visited her flat. By American standards, you would not be allowed to live there, but this was not America. This was Russia. So we wrote to the body of Christ in America, and the body of Christ responded tremendously, and we were able to completely gut her flat. We went in there, and we ripped everything out. We tore out all the cabinets, all the plumbing, the walls, the floors, and we literally rebuilt it from the bottom up. And I promised Lydia that I would come over and spend every Christmas with her till she went home to be with the Lord. And we were able to give her an income. She lived off about $75 a month, folks. And I think during the winter, her heating bill was about $60. So this is how much she struggled. We were able to give her about $500 every month. And whatever extra money we had, I'd always give it to her at the end of the year. She was a very, very innocent woman. And $500 in Russia is a good income. And I remember that one year I went over there and I said, Lydia, I've got $6,000 extra dollars. This is a a lot of money. Do you have a safe place to keep it? She said yes. So I handed her the $6,000. She opened a kitchen cabinet, lifted up a dish towel, stuck it under there, put the dish towel on top of it, you know. And I said, well, I was thinking about a bank, but I guess a dish towel is going to have to work here. But that's just the way Lydia was. She was a very, very innocent woman. The one thing that Lydia really wanted to do her entire life was to go see the world-famous Bolshoi Ballet. It was the biggest dream of her entire life. Now, my wife, Vicki, loves the ballet. All the girls in my office love the ballet. Me, not so much, you know. But it took us about 10 months to get those tickets, folks. It's extremely hard to get them. Finally, we got tickets, and we brought Lydia to Moscow. She had never been on a train before. She had never been in a hotel before. She had never seen television before. And we put her in a room with one of our Russian interpreters to make sure that she was looked after. And the one thing that she did is she got into watching The Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote on television every day. She's not only into watching the show, she's watching it like it's a great drama. She's sitting on the edge of her bed, and she would watch the show, and she would turn to Natasha and go, oh, Natasha, this coyote is so, so bad, you know. And she wanted to get back every day to find out what happened with the coyote, you know. I didn't have the heart to tell her it never ended because that's just the way Lydia was. And, you know, folks, finally the day of the ballet came. So we did what most people did. We took her out to get her the dress she wanted, get her makeup done, get her hair done. And uh, she was having a wonderful time. And I remember going up to the concierge to get a taxi to go to the ballet. And I walked up to the concierge, 
And, he, and I said, I need a taxi to, to the Bolshoi Ballet. And he looked at me, he goes, you have tickets to the world famous Bolshoi Ballet? I said, yes, I do. He goes, do you know there are people that would pay you $10,000 for each of those tickets? I said, trust me, I would pay someone $10,000 to take my place, you know. Um, <laughs> but we went to the ballet that night, guys. And it was magical for Lydia, just watching her made it pleasurable. We went to see the Nutcracker, and her, her hand moved to it the whole night. She cried. She was so sweet. Lydia believed that her prayers could go back in time, and whoever the guy that was wrote the Nutcracker has been dead for 100 years or so. She was praying for him that he would get saved. That's just the way her heart was. And every Christmas I would go over to Lydia's house, we'd have a combination of an American and a kind of a Russian Christmas dinner. It was a very, very sweet time for us. And I would bring her gifts from America, mostly things like a warm house coat, warm house shoes, winter boots, a winter jacket. But I did buy her a piece of jewelry because no man had ever bought her a piece of jewelry before. And I felt it was important that she have that. And she became a very big part of my life. Matter of fact, every time she saw me, she would just smother me in kisses. I told my wife, Vicki, I said, you're going to have to pick it up a little bit. I said, this 74-year-old woman is really doing a much better job than you are, you know, here. But that's just kind of the way that Lydia was. And guys, uh, I remember that when we would go to her for Christmas Eve, uh, to have Christmas with her on January 6th, you know, we'd sing Christmas carols late in the night. And Lydia would talk mostly about her life, the Second World War, her father was killed in it, the things that she went through. But I remember that when I left, uh, I just noticed she was a little bit slower. And I, ran, I got home on January 15th. Well, on January 17th, my wife, Vicki, called me. She said, honey, Lydia's had a massive stroke. She's going home to be with the Lord. And I got quiet on the phone, and Vicki goes, are you okay? And I said, I said, I just need to be left alone. And guys, one of the things that we need to realize is when God calls us to integrate people into our lives, to make them a part of the family of God, we don't do it out of charity. We don't do it so that we can tell testimonies or write books or do movies about it. We do it because Christ has so transformed our lives that this is who we are in Christ. And Lydia had become one of the most important people in my life. It was a great loss for me to, to lose her. I, I kept thinking about how I looked so forward for those nine years that I went to spend Christmas with her. It was the highlight of every year for me. And so it was very difficult to lose her. Well, I'm down at Juan Domingo's church, and I share with Juan. I said, Juan, Lydia's had a massive stroke, and I always promised Lydia when she was dying, I would go back. I would hold her hand. I would be with her when she died. I would share Christ with her family. I said, so soon as the service is over, I've got to get on an airplane and leave. I said, my assistant, Ed, will stay here and teach the Bible school, but I've got to leave as soon as the service is over. And Juan said to me, he goes, Wes, would you come and would you come to our orphanage? And I said, yes, I'll come to your orphanage. Now, guys, when we go out to this orphanage, I'm thinking it's a normal orphanage, but it's not a normal orphanage. It's an orphanage for handicapped children. But they're not handicapped from birth. They're handicapped by parental or adult abuse. We get out there that day, and it's a birthday for one of the little girls. Her name is Jessica. And she's a beautiful little Hispanic child, beautiful skin, beautiful hair. They told us that uh, it was her birthday. They had her in a little Mickey Mouse dress or a little Mickey Mouse pinata. And they told us that when they got her at the age of one, she had cigarette burns all over her body because her parents were taking drugs and burning her baby girl. That her eyes had been so damaged that worms entered into them, and they had to remove her eyes. She was born completely normal, but she will be blind the rest of her life. There was another little girl there by the name of Isabella. Her family strangled her and threw her into the trash. Born normal, but will be, normal, will be three years old for the rest of her life. She will never be a normal human being. 
And I'm there and I'm beginning to think, Lord, are you trying to say something to me here? I mean, we are involved in a major civil war in Sudan. And guys, right now, we are feeding 14,400 children every day in our village. We are supplying all the medical supplies for the entire Nubian army. We have flown in 27 metric tons of medical supplies, and we're getting ready to fly another 10 metric tons of medical supplies. We're involved in a major war over there. And yet, you know, I said, Lord, we're involved in all these radical Islamic nations. Are you actually asking us to take on another work? All I got from the Lord was a sense of feed my sheep or care for my lambs. So I turned to Tanya Wan's wife, and I said, Tanya, how are you supporting this orphanage? She goes, honestly, we don't know if we can keep it open. We have two women that work here. They're seven here seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. We feed them, we house them, but all we can pay them is $50 a month. We don't have the money to give them anything else. She goes, we don't know if we can keep it open. And guys, we're a large organization. I would not call us a mega organization, but we're very large. But we don't have any money designated for this. So that day I decided to go out to Costco. We bought about $10,000 worth of supplies. And uh, then, you know, we went out and bought brand new princess bedroom sets for the little girls. We went out and bought uh, little race car bedroom sets for the little boys. We put in a playground. We renovated the orphanage. And uh, we put up a camera system where the children are monitored 24 hours a day on and off site for the rest of their lives. And while we were there, you know, uh, we hired uh, six or seven full-time workers and in Mexico, a beginning wage is about $250 a month. You have to realize probably 40% of the people are unemployed there. There's a lot of people that don't have jobs. And what happens, you get five or six members of a family that get a $250 job, and that's how they survive. We hired, I believe it was seven, I think we may have eight now, uh, girls that we're paying, and we started them between $400 and $800 a month. And we're giving them raises every year. We're giving, taking them on women's retreats, Christmas parties, and the things that people should be, have that are normal in life. And, uh, you know, when I went to Juan's church, I remember that when I walked in the door, I was looking at the chairs, and the chairs looked like they're 60 years old. And I said, Juan, where did you get these chairs? He says, oh, it's wonderful. A church in America bought new chairs, and they donated these chairs. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure they should have donated these chairs, you know. There's some things we should throw away, and there's some things we should buy new. And for some reason, I just asked my staff to count the chairs, and they counted them. There were exactly 380 chairs in the sanctuary. Well, when I got back to America, I called a chair manufacturer, and it's the exact same chair as you have here, only it's black. And I said, listen, I need a chair for a church in Mexico. They said, Wes, we have exactly what you need. It's a black chair. And I said, how many do you have in stock? They said, we have exactly 380 in stock. And this is when you realize it's not coincidence, it's God's will. Well, guys, by the time we got done, we'd spent $50,000. And yes, we are a large organization, but I don't have any money designated for this. Well, the very next weekend, I'm out, I'm sharing at a church, and I'm kind of explaining to them what we did. I don't tell them about the money, I'm just explaining what the Lord has led us to do with this place, trying to inform them. Afterwards, a guy walks up and he hands me a pistol bag. I actually thought he was donating a gun to the ministry. I thought, you know, I gotta change my message. I mean, people are really getting the wrong idea here, you know. And I go out and I get in my car and I open up my, this gun uh, pistol case. Inside it is $35,000 in $100 bills and 11 gold coins, which at the time was the equivalent of $50,000. Everything that we gave, God gave back one week later. And that's how we work and we trust in the Lord. Now folks, in Luke chapter 19, I'd like you to turn to verse, look at verse 11. And this is the parable of the ten miners. This is 
While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mine has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in very small matters, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mine has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mine away from him and give it to the one that has ten minus. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And guys, what this scripture is talking about is bearing fruit or winning souls for the kingdom of God. Now, it's strange to think that if we win ten souls in this life, we might be over ten cities in the kingdom of God. I don't know whether that's literal or not, but the Bible says the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, the mind cannot conceive the things that God has prepared for those that love him. I have a great ability to imagine great things, folks. I can imagine a mountain like Mount Everest made out of gold or $100 bills. But the Bible says the things that God has prepared for those that love him, we don't have the ability to conceive. The rewards of heaven are going to be great for those that have stored treasures there. I want to share with you about one of our chaplains in the last three weeks of his life. We had heard in uh, May of 2014 that Peter Guy had been killed at the front lines. And guys, you're going to see Peter Guy in a minute. We're going to show you a DVD of uh, the Syrian church and all the chaplains that have lost their lives for the gospel. You'll recognize Peter Guy. He's got a large gap between his two upper front teeth. I don't know why, but in Sudanese society, if you have a large gap between your two upper front teeth, you're considered a very good-looking man or a very beautiful woman. I don't know why. It's just a part of their culture. So if you're not married and you have the gap, move to Sudan. You're going to do great over there, you know. Uh, beauty is just really different in Africa. You know, if you're thin, they don't think you're good looking. If you're overweight, they think you're great looking. I told my wife, Vicky, I said, you got to be careful. I said, I'm like the Fabio of our village out here, you know. It's just very different out here. But guys, we got notice that Peter had been killed. Actually, there were three men killed on the same day. We just did not know about it for a long time. When information comes from the front line, it is high-level encrypted military information. There's not much personal information. We would later find out what happened because we had a fourth chaplain whose name was also Peter in the area, and he was transferred out one week before they were all killed. It was a major battle. We had 700 soldiers. They estimate that the enemy's army was well over 7,000 men. They had fought three battles. There were 400 men left. 300 had been killed. There was an ominous feeling among all the men that everybody was going to die. And you know what? That feeling was correct. They all were going to die. And what we know is Peter told us, he said, you know what? He goes, a month before Peter died, his wife left him for another man, and he was heart sick. He was utterly broken in spirit. He was so troubled by it. 
He said, Peter was really suffering. He said, but the soldiers around us did not know it. Peter knew that he had a job to do. He knew the men were afraid. So he would take his Bible and he would go out and you would see him sit down with 20 men. He would open up the word of God. He would begin to share. And 30 minutes later, all their heads would go down and he'd lead them to Christ. And then there'd be five and then 15 and then 10 and then another 20. And when he was exhausted, he would come back and he would suffer in silence with us. And then when he was refreshed, he would go out and he would do it again. A week before he was killed, his sister called him and said, Peter, your wife has left you. You need to leave the military, come home and take care of your kids. And Peter responded to her, he said, first of all, I am a soldier within the South Sudanese army. If I were to leave, it's desertion, which is punishable by firing squad. He said, but far beyond that, in the book of John, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go. He goes, I was chosen by God to be here at this particular place and time, and I will not leave my post. We were in communication with headquarters just before the last battle, and the last transmission we received is they said, we see a great army arrayed against us. We will call you after this battle. The call never came. All 400 men were killed in that battle. We have never recovered the body of Peter or other two chaplains. They lie among some 700 men whose bodies are no longer distinguishable by the ravages of war. Because I think about when Peter crossed over to the other side. See, he didn't just cross over by himself. He crossed over with 400 men that he had led to Jesus Christ. Whatever his suffering, whatever his heartache, whatever the deep sorrow of his life, he is a prince in the kingdom of God, and his reward will be great. Will he be over 400 cities? I don't know. But I know the Bible says the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, the mind cannot conceive the things that God has prepared for those that love him. You know, guys, when the Bible says that God's going to wash away every sorrow and every tear, people always say that's for the loved one that didn't get saved. I don't think it's what it is at all. I think it's when we see the lives that we could have had and we chose not to have. That's where God will have to wash away our sorrows and tears. I want to share you a couple stories and then we're going to go quick stories and we're going to go to the DVD. And guys, please understand the intent of my heart why I'm sharing these stories. I don't want them to be a boast. I do not want your praise and I do not want your accolades. But I'm trying to make a very strong biblical point so you'll understand something here. During the war, we had a lot of killing going on. We had a village that had been destroyed by the Islamic North. And the Islamics had come in, and like I said, they'd set up these bonfires, and they'd burn these children alive. And when we came into the village, folks, it was still on fire. There's still pockets of fighting. You could hear the popping of the rounds in the distance, the thud of mortars and stuff. And uh, we came in, we set up a medical clinic. We're there for about four to six weeks. I don't remember how long. We ran out of supplies. We pulled out. We re-equipped, and we came back in. As I'm walking into the village, a young girl walks up to me. She's about nine years of age, and she says, Hi, Wes, it's Rebecca. Do you remember me? And I said, No, Rebecca, I don't remember you. I said, Have I ever met you before? And she goes, You don't remember me? I said, No. I said, Have we ever met? She said, The last time you came into my village, my village was on fire. I was running out of it. I was completely naked. When you saw me, you stopped, you dropped your backpack, you took off your shirt, and you put it on top of me. You picked up your backpack, you were bare-chested, and you walked into the village. Do you not remember that? Folks, I have absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. But you know, I would actually think she had me mixed up with someone else, but she not only knew my first name, she knew my last name. My name has never existed in the South Sudan.
But my point is we don't do it for recognition. We don't do it to record. We don't do it so other people can see us. We do it because we have a burden for the lost. We are lost in Christ. We are lost in a world of service. And we don't record these things, but they will be recorded in eternity. We had a situation where Pastor Joe McCormick came out from Utah, and he brought his daughter Sarah and two other young girls. They were 17, 18, 19 years of age. And my wife, Vicki, was discipling them one day, and I walked in there because that's where we keep our coffee. And I love what Pastor Gary Irwin says. He says, you know, Starbucks is the Christian crack house, you know, so I was going in there to get my shot of crack. And uh, I walked in there, and Vicki looked at me, and she goes, honey, do you remember that time uh, they their, captured that thief in the capital of Uganda? They surrounded him. There were about 30 people. They were going to put a car tire on him and light it on fire and burn him alive. And you stopped the car. You went out in, and you pulled him out, and you saved his life. And I said, no, honey, I don't remember that. And one of the young girls looked at me. She said, how could you forget something like that? I said, you don't understand. This is southern Sudan in northern Uganda. And this kind of stuff happens all the time. Folks, we're going to go ahead and show you the DVD now. And remember, Peter guys with the gap at his teeth. You will see the suffering of the Syrian church, but you're also going to see their faith, and I hope it inspires you. Let's go ahead and show that. When the war started, many problems happened, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our areas. Uh, that time I speak to the leaders, and uh, we met together, and I said, as in Acts book, the believers when they have the persecuted most of them they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lost our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people. They stand there and they said, we will not leave. We will continue to serve God here in this area. And we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we built a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take it directly. 
And most of the Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian. They put them in the class. And when they put them, many times they put in the area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, with his son, and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ, but the father said no and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't, uh, come to Islam now. We will, we will kill your son in front of your, your eyes. And after that, they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between these uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, so sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am in dangerous. The important things in our life, not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this.
Hey folks, Monday of this week, we lost another chaplain by the name of Thomas, along with his wife and child, were killed in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. From 2000 to 2013, 13 of our staff have been killed in the war. In the last two years, 24 of our staff have been killed in the war. And where it's getting much worse day by day. I want to share with you that there are times that ministry is extremely difficult, folks. And one of the things that we need to realize is that the Bible says that we're to gird up the loins of our mind, that we're to put on the full armor of Christ. You know, you think that there's never a place that Satan can't go lower, but you find that he can always go deeper. We have recently taken on a new project. We call it Children of War. In northern Uganda and southern Sudan, rebels have come down and they've attacked villages. And what they will do is take a child of 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age and give them a machete and say, cut the head off your mother. And if the child refuses, they say, if you do not kill your mother, we'll kill your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters, and then we'll kill you. So you have a choice right now. Either your mother dies or the entire family dies. It is hard to explain to you. I have been in many counseling appointments with children like this. The type of mourning and sorrow that comes with such a depth from the heart, it is not possible for me to explain to you what it sounds like to hear those children mourn. We are taking on 700 children, children of war, and now putting them through Christian schools where they are protected and watched over. We have built fortresses there to make sure that this does not happen to them again. We are racing toward the last days, folks. Racing. And the Bible says in the last days that we will be hated by all nations. Not some nations, all nations. And as believers, you have to decide where will you store your treasures? Will you store them on earth or will you store them in heaven? Will you love the things of this world or will you love the things of Christ? I look at pastors today, so many of them, I get up and I, look, I watch them in the pulpit and they're 60 years old and they dress like 20-year-old children. They're trying to fit in. We were never supposed to fit into this world. The Bible says that we are a people that are set apart for the gospel. It says we are a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, because we do not fit into the world, but we are set aside for his services. Folks, I doubt that I will live out my natural life. And I told my mother one day, I said, there is a high probability you're going to call to call one day and they're going to tell you that I'm gone. I said, Mom, do not tell the world that it was a mistake or a tragedy. You tell them that I ran the race, I finished the course, and now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. Folks, I want to encourage you in your own personal walks with the Lord, get into the battle. Start to live Christ to a lost world. Share your faith. Do not live for the things of this life, but much like Peter, live for the things of the life to come. In closing this morning as you leave, we have a division of our ministry. We call it Ghost Operations. It's the invisible hand in the closed world of radical Islam. We're now sponsoring over 700 pastors. And the thing about this, folks, none of these guys work for far-reaching ministries. We have sponsored them through other organizations. Matter of fact, when we started raising money, they said, Wes, why would you raise money and send it to our organization instead of raise money for your organization? I said, because I'm building God's kingdom, not mine. How will I stand before a holy God on the day of judgment when the Syrian church has been slaughtered for over five years, having done nothing for the gospel? It's not about story making your kingdom. 
It's not about writing books. So many pastors today, so many Christians want to write their book. We don't need your book. We got the book that we need. It gives us the roadmap to life, and that's the book that we follow. If you'd like to sponsor one of these, it's $75 a month. Their faces have been blocked out. We've given you portions of their testimony. We will give you no updates on them unless they are killed, because if they are found out, they will be tortured and executed. That's why we run it under ghost operations. Then we have our chaplains in the South Sudan, guys. I have 500 men. Almost all of them are in frontline combat units right now serving in extreme warfare. Most of my guys speak between four and seven languages. Some of them speak 13. If you'd like to sponsor one of these, it's also $75 a month. And then we have the Children of War, which is $50 a month to sponsor these. These are automatic debits. They come out on the third of each month. You have to fill out the form. You cannot take these and walk away, folks, because we will not know if they're sponsored. If you'd like to do it, pick them out. Name, address, phone number, sign it at the bottom. Voidy checks work best because we don't pay fees, but you can use a debit or credit card. And if you don't have your information and you want to do it, just fill it out and sign it, and we'll call you later. I want to share with you that when we first started this, I really thought we were in trouble. I thought, you know, Wes, you're going to struggle to keep this ministry running because you're giving all your money away to other organizations. But you know what God did? He changed the heart of the body of Christ. Instead of people sponsoring a child or a ghost ops, they started sponsoring one and two, two and three. If you sponsor a child and a pastor, it's 125. If you sponsor all three, it's 200. If you sponsor one, it's 75 or 50, depending on what you picked out. But that's what God did, folks, and it's not what I expected. I expected the opposite. I shouldn't have, because I've seen the faithfulness of God all these years. And I want to encourage you as a body, as King David said, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. We do not want you to take this out of your church tithing. If you have to take it out of your church tithing, please do not do it. You need to make this a gift above and beyond to the Lord. But most importantly as believers, as Peter so rightly spoke to his sister, in the book of